0: Dr. amy king otherwise known as dr amy and this podcast is the most important medicine if you don't know me i'm a licensed psychologist trainer and consultant and on this podcast we're here to talk about how talking about trauma and sharing stories is how we transform medicine i work with physicians and healthcare organizations on the daily and every time we begin these conversations and i even hint at the discussion of trauma i met with one of two things either intense, compassionate curiosity, and or a whole lot of skepticism. And that's what we're here for, to make understanding and discussing trauma accessible, and even more important, how to respond so that you feel more competent as a provider. Every time you join me, I want you to hear practical information and leave with tangible tools that you can use with patients today. Um, And today I am joined by my special guest, Kit O'Malley. Kit is an author, speaker, mental health advocate, and former therapist. In her book, Balancing Act, Writing Through a Bipolar Life, she offers hope to those living with mental illness and their loved ones. As a therapist who left her career due to mental illness, Kit educates the public about mental health and fights stigma against those living with mental illness by challenging stereotypes. Kit, I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Um, That's kind of your formal introduction. Anything you want to share with listeners about who you are or what you do?
1: Well, I'm, I'm also a, uh, well, a mom of a now 22-year-old college student. He's mm-hmm. independent. Um, uh, and I, uh, I live in the woods in Oregon on the eastern side of the Cascade. So I have lots of sunshine, which I love and need. Um, and I love um, nature and flowers. And just, you know, I'm more than my diagnosis and, and more than being a mental health advocate. So I think that's one thing that's important for people to know.
0: Yeah, all the other aspects that make you an incredible human being. Absolutely. Um, let's just dive in and I'm going to ask you a broad question. How would you define mental illness and how's that different than mental health?
1: That's a great question. I think everybody has mental health, right? So, and the question is, how healthy are you mentally? Mm -hmm. Um, So we all have mental health, including those people with mental illness, but people who have mental illness have a diagnosable health condition. Mm
0: -hmm. It's
1: a a condition that it it could be, you know, it's brain related. It could be trauma related. It could be something that's uh, caused by something that happened in your life you know, and, uh, you know, whether it be grief and it, that became complicated or something like that, but it's beyond the normal uh, realm of mental, you know, of a, you know, it's on, the, it's on the side. It's like, if you looked at a spectrum of mental health, between perfect mental health to uh, poor mental health, it's on, it's on that's it's on the poorer side, but not because of practices, like all of us can practice good mental health. And that's what I do daily, try to practice. I'm I'm not perfect, but I try to practice good mental health, like taking care of myself, you know. Um, But uh, there are those of us who um, have to take medicine or go to therapy Mm -hmm. uh, to treat mental illness so that we can be healthier, mentally healthy.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I know we're going to talk about your story and diagnoses, and kind of where you came to write this book. Um, but for people who may not be in the the field of psychiatry or psychology, um, I know a lot of your work is around destigmatizing mental illness, and specifically around bipolar disorder. Um, can you just define for people what bipolar disorder is? Yeah. Um... I
1: actually preferred the old label for bipolar disorder, which was manic depression. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't use it because it's not used anymore, but it is more descriptive of of the diagnosis. Um, Someone with bipolar disorder, if their uh, illness is not treated, um, have periods of mania, which can uh, involve, it can be as severe as having psychotic thoughts or hearing or seeing things that aren't there. Um, can have racing thoughts, um, you can um, be not be able to sleep. You know, I, I once wasn't able to sleep for a week.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, hyperproductive, very highly sexualized in their behavior, mm-hmm. very high risk-taking. Um, so that would be mania. And then there's a milder version of that hypomania, which is mm-hmm. just sort of uh, uh, being... Productive or thinking faster, being hyper productive. You know, it's like a, a milder version of mania, and then depression. And most people understand what depression is. It's people have been talking about that long enough to understand that depression isn't just sadness. Um, it's a, a a a being persistently. Uh, either sad or, or you can have it physically where you just can't get out of bed or physically heavy for two weeks or more. And I had that actually chronic depression from the time I was it's suicidal depression with suicidal ideation and suicidality. um, From the time I was uh, 18 to, um, to me throughout my 20s and, and 30s, struggled with that until I was diagnosed bipolar. Um, so um, yeah, so that would be my lay person's, I hope, I hope that explains it.
0: No, that's perfect. And I think for people listening, I really appreciate autonomy around diagnoses, you know, and I think people have the right to choose how they would like mental illness to be labeled, whether that be bipolar disorder or mental illness or manic depression, because I think, um, there's a lot of pathology around diagnoses. And so I like that you kind of say, I prefer this diagnosis. I use this one because it's what's in kind of being accepted right now. But I think there's a lot to say around um, autonomy and choice when we talk about labeling mental illness. So I appreciate you saying that. Um if I could interrupt just for a sec, that's um, another thing. A lot of people, and I'm sort
1: of an older generation. I'm 59, so this is more of a new movement of people using the term neurodivergent. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Meaning that our brains are different
0: mm-hmm. than mm-hmm.
1: your typical normal brain, mm-hmm. and that's a more they that's considered a more um, uh, stigma-free.
0: Yeah, term. absolutely, absolutely. Do you like that term, neurodivergent?
1: I don't use it. <laughs> But I think it's great that people are in, in sort of embracing uh, sort of trying to overcome stigmas. For me personally, I look back at like the queer movement, at people yeah. taking terms that were once used to be uh, stigmatizing um, and just saying no, you know, yeah. I, it, I, I, I just, you know, like uh, my parents even had dementia and, and it's like, that doesn't have to be a stigmatized Mm-hmm. just or term just like bipolar or manic depression or depression doesn't have to be or schizophrenia doesn't have to be a stigmatized term so that's where I come I come from but I'm I, I, I understand there's a generational difference there and and I and, and I appreciate people trying to uh,
0: fight stigma and
1: stigma of labeling
0: well, and, and on that note, what I'll say to folks that are listening is, you know, language is ever evolving and we're going to make mistakes and we're going to make missteps and we're going to have times where we want to use different labels and whatnot. And I, you know, the most important thing to me is that we ask the person who may otherwise be pathologized what they prefer um, because that gives choice back. So um, I really appreciate you you saying that. Um, I, I'd love to just hear and and the listeners that that i often um speak to in this audience are physicians and other healthcare providers i'd love to just hear your story kit about diagnoses i know you went through gosh just the ringer um when it came to diagnoses and i think understanding someone's story is an incredible way to learn would you would you mind just walking folks through that for what your experience was like you bet um, i I, my
1: uh, journey with uh, mental health diagnoses or mental illness started when I was an 18-year-old freshman at UCLA. I was a biochem major, honor student, very high achieving, very active on campus. But I had uh, persistent suicidal ideation, and I thought that my family would be better off without me mm-hmm. and that the world would be better off without me. I saw myself as a burden, um, and I didn't think that I was worth anything so I um it got to the point where I actually had uh the you know the means the the method you know the time the plan all the things that made it very high risk mm-hmm. I and I um uh got uh cognitive behavioral therapy at UCLA which helped me get through the crisis mm-hmm. um of 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 um and you know, I basically I saw myself, what I was doing sort of, and went, oh my goodness, this is more than just thoughts. I'm actually acting on this right now. Um, and uh, I knew I needed help and I got it and I'm very thankful for that help.
0: Wow, can I ask you a question about that? Um, yes. How, so some people that are listening may not have seen what you just did with your hands, which is like you you really kind of stepped outside yourself, right, and looked at what was happening and and said, this this isn't good, right? I'm actually taking actions towards ending my life.
1: Right, and this is actually something that I've. Um, it's one what a clinical way of calling is dissociating. <laughs> so, I was able to get outside of the thought process and observe myself. And it's also something that you use when you when you learn what's called cognitive behavioral therapy. You 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 you're able to take a you develop this skill at taking a look at what your thoughts are. And then rewriting them to more rational, more self-loving thoughts. Um, and luckily, i I already had that skill, or somehow, you know, it's, and so I was able to, in that moment, do that. Mm-hmm. take a look at and 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 and, you know, get, take a step out of the thought process. Um, and actually later, when I was psychotic, and I'll get to that, I was able to do that too. Wow. So I've always had that skill, and that's a very helpful skill to have. Um, insight and to have the ability to step away from the thought process um, Mm -hmm. because
0: um, it's enabled me to uh, stay alive. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So you recognize I need help. You got into some cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, Go ahead from there. Sorry. So I
1: went through my 30, my twenties, I'm sorry. um, Coping with depression by going to therapy. Mm-hmm. So, and I got a master's in psychology and my master's is in uh, a psychodynamic psychotherapy, which is different mm-hmm. than is it's like going into your, your family of origin, your family, mm-hmm. basically how your family affected you. Um, and I had an alcoholic family. So there was stress, you know, I mean, and, and mental illness and, and, and substance abuse tend to be intergenerational. It's something that's passed on generation after generation. And, um, and though I also had a loving family, you know, I mean, I, I had both, you know, no families all bad or all good. Um, uh, uh, the therapy that I was in after several years I became sicker and sicker and sicker more and more depressed because I was just, um, obsessing, you know, like going back to how I was abused as a child, how I was abused as a child. And, um, and it got to the point where, um, I was working in, I used to work with severely emotionally disturbed adolescents when I was in my tw- late twenties, mid to late twenties. And, um, at one point in time, I was working in day treatment, and a 16 year old, six foot 16 year old boy who was big, much bigger than I was, um, threatened to rape me during a session. And I went to go get the phone, and he just dis- he un- disconnected the phone. And luckily, I was good at when I was young at sort of rushing the quarterback, which <laughs> is sort of like being able to, uh, you know, like go and I was a tennis player so I was able to go back and forth and back and forth and get by him so mm-hmm. I was able to get by him and get out of the room and get help from mm-hmm. you know um some strong men on on <laughs> on the uh on the uh, staff mm-hmm. who could con- control him mm-hmm. um and uh and after that uh I just I could I couldn't even get out of bed I was so depressed mm-hmm. and and I called my parents and this is, I was about 30 at this point point. I called my parents and I said, I, I can't, I told them what happened. I said, I can't even get out of bed. Mm-hmm. I can't go back to work. I just can't do this anymore. And they said, uh, you know, uh, go, go to your doctor, get, get medicine. Mm-hmm.
0: So I went to my, go ahead. Look, looking back at that moment, you know, with your therapist eyes and lens, do you think you were traumatized by that interaction?
1: Without a doubt, I was traumatized and that same year, I lost a friend a high school friend to AIDS and i um uh, lost my grandmother, who I was very close to mm-hmm. so there were three traumas in one year, really close yeah all close together and it just that was just sort of like it just broke the camel's back mm-hmm. and so um my uh, so i my parents said, "Go to your primary physician about." getting medication for depression. And so I I did that, even though I felt like I couldn't get out of bed, I was able to get out of bed and go to my doctor. Um, and she put me on medication. And then I had a reaction to the medication. It was in the, one of the first SSRIs, which is Prozac. Um, as, and I it just felt like I was going to anyway, I had a side effect where I felt like I was jumping out of my skin. It was just very intolerable. So she put another antidepressant that had more of a sedating, calming effect on it. It was Trazodone. And then um, my parents said, well, why don't you get a second opinion from a psychiatrist? And she's putting you on two medications and you're having these side effects. And unfortunately, the psychiatrist I went to didn't believe in SSRIs because this was back when SSRIs were relatively new. Okay. This is around uh, the early Mm nineties. And, um, so I, uh, he took me off in, so in a very short period of time I had these medication changes Mm -hmm. where I had first an SSRI, then trazodone on top of it. Then he took me off the SSRI and I was just on the trazodone. Then he took me off the trazodone and put me on a tricyclic. And at that point I became manic. Yeah. Wow. So I had a full blown one week manic episode Mm -hmm. where i was uh very rapidly i have three i had three different uh streams of thought i had zeros and ones going through my brain and that's binary code and i knew it was binary code but i'm not a computer so i didn't know what it meant (laughs) so and i had uh thoughts about christian mystic saints, which I was actually familiar with. It was something that I had a passion for Mm -hmm. and thoughts about chaos theory, which is like physics and mathematics. Mm -hmm. Um, So and I was, again, able to. Pull back, observe it, pull back and observe that. Mm -hmm. And um, and I was I was actually fascinated by it, even though I knew I was psychotic and I knew it was a manic episode. Um, Finally, what happened was a friend of mine uh, called my uh, priest in my church and my father and said, Kit needs help now. And my priest and a seminarian who had bipolar disorder came over Mm -hmm. right then, right when she called. And my father got on a plane and came up. I was in the Bay Area at that time. And and rather than be hospitalized, which I was probably very could have been, Mm Uh, my psychiatrist put me on three antipsychotics, which just nipped it in the bud mm-hmm. for three days and then back to the lower dose of the tricyclic to stabilize me. But I just wasn't able to. My brain just wasn't working.
0: So just a, a question of curiosity, I, because I know folks will will wonder about this that are listening and, and less uh, familiar with mental illness um, you have this incredible capacity to pull back and look in, and you were a trained therapist at that point, and you kind of know how brains work. Um, can you describe for maybe a primary care doctor or somebody who doesn't have a lot of experience, a, a nurse, a healthcare worker, um, what that what that feels like in your brain to have these three different streams of consciousness and And I'll remind you if you can't remember both my questions (laughs) and um, how might that look? What does it present like? Right. I,
1: you know, because I was able to observe it, it's going to be much different than somebody who doesn't have that ability to observe it or doesn't have insight into what's going on and is just experiencing it as reality. Mm -hmm. So I knew it wasn't reality. So I would have been able to explain to a doctor what was going on. And I did to my psychiatrist and to my priest. I was able to say, this is what's going Mm
0: -hmm. on. Mm -hmm.
1: And I was able to say, no harm done. All I did was move into a cottage and paint it. You know what I mean? I didn't. (laughs) I haven't haven't spent all my money. You know what I mean? No harm done. So this, just this is going on. So I knew enough to know the risks in terms of harm done because uh, people can be extremely destructive when they're in a manic state. Mm-hmm. So what I would think that if if a clinician has somebody who explains that they're going through these things, then I'd say, okay, you you need to go, and this is what later on, I was told when I was thirty nine, so I wasn't yet diagnosed bipolar. This was considered oh iatrogenic. Gosh. Okay this was considered this was considered triggered by the medication.
0: Okay, okay. Um, but at the time, you were able to describe to your psychiatrist what was going on, you were kind of aware of the processes. Um, did it feel, um, if you described it to someone else, did it feel like racing thoughts? Did it feel like yes thoughts? Did it feel very clear? It was racing thoughts, without a doubt. I would describe it as
1: racing thoughts, and I think that if somebody described it, that's how they would describe as these thoughts are going through so fast in my mind, I don't even, I can't even understand them. They're going so fast, mm-hmm. and but if if somebody does isn't able to to describe them, what you're going to get is you're going to get racing speech. Yeah. Okay. Right. So you're going to get somebody who see, who seems, um. You might, you know. I mean, okay. I was able to present pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But uh, you, you might get racing, you know, speech or the, mm-hmm. or other physical manifestations of the mania.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and for someone like you said, who's maybe not aware that they're in a manic state, they might have that very rushed speech. They might even start describing some of those things that you were experiencing, right? The spiritual components, the binary thoughts, right? Which to someone else you know that just seems like where's this coming from right
1: right and my sister actually did would did describe me back as that time as talking about things that were bizarre bizarre
0: okay yeah yeah
1: so 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 yeah so they might start talking about this this psychosis would be you know bizarre thoughts that don't are outside the realm of what you know to me they all made sense and to
0: even now, now they do mm-hmm. <laughs> And they do make sense in that moment because they're all connected yes. right. for you. Absolutely. For, for me,
1: I, I, and this is something, even as a, a therapist I did and people didn't really like, I think that, that uh, somebody who is in a psychotic state, mm-hmm. I mean, yes, they, they, the psychosis needs to be addressed. Mm-hmm. Um, but there still can be meaning in, in the thoughts. Yes. So I think that. The, the fact that there still can be meaning and the thought should be respected.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank that's... you for saying that, Kit. I, I think that um, that's a really compassionate way of looking at that lens of mental illness, specifically mania, um, that if we dismiss it, if we minimize it, if we just tell that person, you know, they're quote unquote crazy, um, there's still, then, then we're not seeing their, their humanness that's there also. Right. But, um, okay, so you're, you're still in just your late 20s, early 30s. It gets chalked up as this medication side effect. And then right. what?
1: And then I end up moving back in with my parents because I'm really not able to go back to work. You know, I'm not even able to read at this point on the tricyclic. Um, I'm not able to, the w- letters in a word wouldn't hold together enough for me able to read the word. The words in a sentence wouldn't hold enough. They just fly apart. Uh, So my brain was still not working. And um, so I moved in with my parents and saw another psychiatrist who asked, have you ever, has anybody ever suggested putting you on lithium? And I said, no, but I'm more than willing to go on lithium. Mm -hmm. And he said, no, let's try this. We think that might've been caused by the medication, you know, and I explained other experience, you know, like my whole experiences since I was 18. And he said, let's, let's, I said, but I was very, very productive. You know what I mean? More productive than your typical person before I'd crash. he said, say, well, let's, let's give a try of a, another SSRI. So we tried another SSRI and anytime that my thoughts would start to, to get go, that I start to think rapidly, have that pressure of rapid thoughts, I would call and I'd say, oh, my thoughts are racing mm-hmm. and we would lower the dose. Okay. and ramped up titrated very, very slowly to a very, very low dose SSRI. And on that, I lived throughout my 30s, okay.
0: um,
1: except for a trial of Welbutrin, um, which is another type of antidepressant where I was practically murderous. So, mm-hmm. um, but I didn't, I don't like the side effects of SSRIs, which they have some negative sexual side effects.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so, so I was on SSRIs, basically, except for the well uterine trials, until my son was until I was in my late 30s and had a, a toddler. Mm-hmm. And then I started to feel euphoria and I was feeling that God was calling me to one church, to go to a Bible study, into another church for spiritual direction. And though the behavior I was doing and even the call, if it was God calling me it was fine in terms of what it was, but the euphoria, I recognized that euphoria as um, a symptom of hy- hypomania or mania. So I got on the, The nurse, you know, on the back of your insurance card, you have a nurse phone number. And so I called the on-call advice nurse and I had my husband get on the phone so that he could understand how serious this was. Um, And I explained what was going on and she said, go to the emergency room or see a psychiatrist today. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wasn't able to see a psychiatrist. So my primary physician said, I will give you this mood stabilizer over the weekend. If you promise me, you see, cause it's Friday. I couldn't get in yeah. to see anybody. I didn't want to go to the ER. I wanted to try medication before I was hospitalized. Mm-hmm. And so I had a mood stabilizer, which is a basically a, uh, anti-seizure medication that stabilizes mood, which I'm on right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and, uh, And then the following week I saw a psychiatrist and was diagnosed with bipolar disorder.
0: Wow. I'm making note of a couple of things, Kit, if you have thoughts on this. One, you've had really incredibly supportive people that you've reached out to. Um, It sounds like your parents noticed, like, hey, things aren't okay, let's get you some help. There was a priest at one point, your husband, you had the wherewithal to to advocate for yourself by calling the nurse on the back of the insurance card. Um, How important is that? And has that been for you? It's been
1: extremely important to me. And unfortunately those people who are not as articulate as educated or have as much insight Mm -hmm. who still deserve the same treatment respect, you know, that I received Mm -hmm. don't get the same treatment and respect that I received. Yeah. So because I was highly educated, because I had been a former psychotherapist and had the vocabulary and knowledge and understanding and insight, Mm -hmm. because I had been in therapy since I was 18, so I really had a lot of insight, Mm -hmm. I was able to do things that other people weren't able to do. And because I had supportive and loving family and friends and a community. Um, that made all the difference.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so can you talk to me a little bit about the the medical side of your experience Um, so that healthcare providers that are listening to this podcast might learn things that went well for you and things you wish they would have done differently?
1: Right. Well, my first, actually the first internist I went to, my first doctor did fine. If I stayed with her, I probably would have been okay, been okay, in terms of coping with the the depression. Mm -hmm. Um, And after I was stabilized on medication with a psychiatrist, when I was in my 30s, I actually then sought treatment with primary care physicians, because I thought that my diagnosis was chronic depression, which is uh, called dysthymia. Uh So I thought my diagnosis is something that a primary care physician can handle. Mm -hmm. But when I was in, and I continued going to therapy, but when I was in therapy and when I was visiting a primary care physician, I would say, I am probably not just depressed but I still didn't go to a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you, if somebody says, I am probably not just depressed, I'm really, really um, productive, I have a tendency to be a workaholic and then crash, things like that are tip offs that maybe this person has a more serious mental illness than depression. That maybe this person needs a referral. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Do you wish your primary care doc would have pushed you a little bit more to see a psychiatrist or a psychiatric nurse practitioner at that time? Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And, and that's probably the flip side of being articulate and well-educated, right? That, that um, they didn't feel like they could push you in that direction. Well, I think that it's not so much that they didn't feel, but I think that I passed. Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah. Say more about that. That's so important. I think that there's a lot of
1: people out there, especially with bipolar disorder, who are extremely successful people, Mm -hmm. articulate, you know, they, and we don't, you cannot see what is going on in our minds. And unless you, we tell you, you do not know that we are working 12 hours, 14 hours a day. You do not know that that is not a healthy th- You might not pick up that that's not healthy behavior. Mm-hmm. We might not be telling you about the things that we are doing that are unhealthy and that are manic that are, you know, um, and so if we're able to present and look like we're well, doesn't mean that we are well so what i would say is that anybody who is assessing or treating for depression that they should have some sort of differential diagnosis worksheet or check sheet that they ask questions that can kind of see whether this person needs to be referred to a psychiatrist because they might have a more serious mental illness
0: yeah i I can hear my friend and and um, colleague Dr. Chang in my head saying, "Always use questionnaires, even if you know to rule out, because it's objective data. You're asking everybody that question. If somebody's presenting with depression, for instance, but they're telling you these, like, let's just give them a, a you know, a, a data-driven questionnaire that can right. get alternatives so that we can make the best treatment decisions possible." But I think often what happens is that we rely on kind of anecdotal information or, you know, don't fully explore other possibilities, the dual, you know, other differentials, as you were saying. And then we miss maybe helping someone. Do you feel like, I mean, like that, it seems like a a decade went by Kit that you didn't have the appropriate diagnoses. I would agree. (laughs) So, and maybe even longer because
1: I did have this history of, of uh, overworking and crashing even before, you know, even my, right out of undergraduate school, I was a workaholic. Mm-hmm. So I worked, you know, regularly, you know, 14 hour days and stuff. So I, you know, that, that's behavior that could have been picked up as being, um, you know, if, if somebody had given me a questionnaire as not being healthy, although I was actually tested when my parents had me tested to try to figure out what college to uh, transfer to. Sure. And they had me tested by a psychologist and I tested it as depressed. So I think part of it is that there is for many people with bipolar disorder a natural progression of mm-hmm. the illness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That it may that it may start as depression and, and you know, and even test as depression until mm-hmm. we start aging. Mm-hmm. and either are triggered by uh, medications or just it's just a natural progression of the illness.
0: Sure, sure. And there's a lot to be said for what you mentioned before, right? Which is people only know what you tell them because you know, unless you're describing what's happening in your brain, these three conscious streams of thought and, um, and you present really well, somebody might not catch it or know about it.
1: Right. Well, even the psychiatrist who I did tell about that, they, they still thought it was iatrogenic because given my whole, history up until I was medicated Mm -hmm. that I hadn't had manic episodes before that. Mm -hmm. Um, so at that point in time, we have to remember they did not have the diagnosis of bipolar two in the DSM. They -hmm. only had bipolar one and the only fully blown manic episode was that week that they thought was triggered by the antidepressants.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, Why should we be talking about mental illness more? Because there is a
1: huge cost to us all in having anyone in our society not be treated first compassionately and treated, period. Mm -hmm. Um, There's, there's, you have people not able to work people who are, lose their lives to suicide. Um, depression is a horrible thing to have to live with. Mm-hmm. Um, and mania can be extremely destructive to families and to society, you know, so it just sort of ripples out. So all of us are affected by mental illness, whether the, we're the ones who have the mental illness, whether the, we're the ones who love someone with a mental illness, or whether, we're just the culture as a whole, um, you know? So if people are treated maybe, and there are people who will not accept treatment, you know, I mean, you, you know, for whom, um, because because of, you know, they have a lack of insight and they just, that, that won't happen. Um, and that's, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm pro. Uh, medication, obviously, but not everybody is and 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 some for some people that's I understand, and for other people, it's, it's to me it's just tragic.
0: Yeah, um, um, you use the word compassion, which I completely resonate with in in healthcare. Um, can you think of a time um, where a, a provider treated you with such great compassion? Or didn't that it really affected you know kind of your experience in, in the healthcare field?
1: Luckily, because I, I was somebody who wanted to be a doctor my whole life, <laughs> so I was I was like really into medicine, mm-hmm. and uh, you know had been a met, you know as a kid in high school had medical explorer scout and all that kind of volunteered in hospitals and things, so I was pretty geeked out on medicine. So I I think I always received respect. Mm. From healthcare providers. Mm-hmm. So, um, and maybe the respect actually got in the way of me getting proper diagnosis and treatment from primary care or referrals from primary care providers. Um, it's, it's because of my personality I probably don't even, I don't recall, lack of compassion or respect. Mm-hmm. Um, No, actually, the psychiatrist who triggered my mania described me. So this is a psychiatrist, Mm -hmm. described uh, what I was going through in psychodynamic terms and said that I was in an adolescent phase, Mm. that I had regressed to an adolescent phase. Mm -hmm. And that was extremely disrespectful. Absolutely. I was a licensed psychotherapist living independently in the San Francisco Bay Area, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: which is an extremely expensive and difficult place to live and very competitive. There are lots of therapists. (laughs) (laughs) I worked in nonprofit, so I did not make a lot of money, but I managed to take care of myself. Mm -hmm. So I lived independently and worked in very, very difficult and challenging work. So for him to describe me in that way, when I was going through a mental health crisis was extremely disrespectful. And when I ended up telling him that I was moving back in with my parents, he rolled his eyes. Mm. My parents for whatever dysfunction or whatever we had in the family, which every family is going to have some dysfunction. Mm -hmm. Just rose to the occasion. Mm -hmm. They, they, I, I moved in and the first thing was just heal, you know, take me to the doctor. Second thing was, uh, you know, to a psychiatrist and therapy. And I went to a a group practice, which I'm a big, even though I don't go to that now, I'm a big believer in team treatment, you know, in, in, in in all the different providers working together as a team, including the family and the person we're all members of the team,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. um, treatment team. But, um, Then they started to give me jobs to do and pay me to do jobs around the house Mm -hmm. to get me sort of to start being productive. And then once I was getting better and better, they started to charge me rent Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. until and I wasn't able to make enough money with their projects to pay their rent. So then I went out and got a temp job. Mm -hmm. And so it led to me then getting and I met my husband during this time. Oh, and my husband, during one of our first dates, said, Kit, you are the most independent woman I've ever met. And I started laughing. And I said, I'm a former professional who now is working as a file clerk, temporary file clerk, and living with my parents. And I'm 30, 31 at that time. And he said, no, really, I mean it. So Mm -hmm. he was somebody who saw beyond my mental illness, Mm -hmm. beyond my circumstances, and saw who I truly was.
0: Well, and what a healing moment from the psychiatrist who had said, you know, who infantilized you essentially by calling you an adolescent to your, your later husband, now husband, who said you're the most independent woman I know. Exactly. Wow. Wow. I actually wrote, wrote down as you were talking about what you did with your parents. So I'm going to just reflect back to you. Um, heal, then treat, then provide some structure so the person can grow and gain relationships. I mean, I couldn't write a treatment plan better.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they really helped me. They Mm -hmm. saved my life. I mean, my, my, so, any resentment I had, or the therapy where I was always, you know, being told, oh, I was abused by alcoholism, nah, 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 nah. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you know what, and I had worked with some extremely as a therapist, extremely dysfunctional families, where I still had compassion for the families, and mm-hmm. could see that the families actually did love. Absolutely. But didn't they were just caught in intergenerational, you know, trauma. trauma, yeah, they were just, they didn't know another way of doing it. Mm-hmm. So and my parents clearly loved me. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. went out of their way. They would have done anything to help me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But at the same time, they did not, once I was well enough, they did not enable me. Mm-hmm. They encouraged me to be independent.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, but not when I wasn't ready.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, just, they didn't say. I love, oh, sorry. I, I love everything you're saying about like families aren't perfect right but parents love kids and they're trying to do the best they can and even in families where there might be trauma maybe not yours but others right families are still part of the treatment team they still have to be seen as whole people people with mental illness have to be treated with compassion I mean the messaging in this is so important kid thank you
1: I agree totally
0: um, I also noticed that you have an, a wonderful sense of humor, you know, even as you were talking about the mania and you said not, what did you say? Not much harm done, uh, no harm done, no harm done. You just painted a cottage, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, doing some of the other destructive things that can happen during mania. Um, how do you keep that sense of humor now? I think
1: that humor, a sense of humor is, is one of the best coping mechanisms there is. Mm-hmm. So, and and I'm lucky in that I have a really funny husband. Unfortunately, he has a dry sense of humor so he can keep me going for a while because <laughs> I'm gullible. Um, but I also think that in marriage and in relationships is key.
0: Yeah, oh, agree, agree. Yeah, um, okay, I have some what I call rapid fire questions to kind of um, uh, wrap up for today, Are You ready? Yes. Okay. Um, what's one thing people get wrong about folks with mental illness? They think that, well, first
1: of all, that people with mental illness are necessarily dangerous. We are not mm-hmm. necessarily dangerous. Very, very, very few of us are dangerous. And there are dangerous people who do not have what we would consider a mental illness. They might be conduct disorder, not have empathy. You know, there's... And the other thing is that... Um, that we are defined or limited by our mental illness. Um, there are, I, I have had to change in my, my life what, what my goals were, but in, in, in being 59 years old, I'm able to look back and say, well, actually everything had a purpose in my life. Everything had a purpose and brought me here to what I'm able to do today. And so everyone, whether or not you have a mental illness has a purpose. Absolutely. Um, And everyone has a value Mm -hmm. and is worthy of love and compassion. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's the main thing. I always wanna say to to those who have mental illness and to those who love someone who has mental illness is that you are not alone, that you are enough because I know it's really hard to be a, a caretaker of somebody who has mental illness too. Um, I've been in more than one role in my life Um, that you are lovable and loving
0: and all that stuff, you know, (laughs) all the good stuff, all the good stuff. Um, If you um, could go back and talk to young Kit, you know, um, what would you tell her?
1: Exactly what I just said. Because I was a perfectionist and I had, I was really hard on myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I had very high expectations that I, ever since I was very, very, very young, um, that I was to be a doctor and go to Harvard medical school. Mm-hmm. So my suicide, sui- my suicidal depression at 18 mm-hmm. stopped that path. I had to reassess that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I felt like a failure. I actually didn't tell myself. My parents did. I didn't tell my parents that I had been um, depressed that year um, I, because I was so ashamed of it. Yeah. So I think one thing is there's no shame in having a mental illness. It's it it's not a failure. Um, that and again that 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 very self-compassionate message of that you are enough and you are loving and lovable, and that you have a purpose, you might not know what that purpose is in the moment when you're in the middle of it. It might not, you might not be clear for many, many years on what that purpose is. We don't always know. So but you do.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting you say that often in my private practice, what I say to folks is, um, I'm here to hold space until you find that purpose. Perfect. Right. That, that you are worthy and lovable. And until you see it and believe it, there are other people to hold that for you. Um, Right.
1: And that's another thing. I know that there've been a lot of like pop psychology, people say, Oh, you can't love others until you love yourself. Well, that's not right. Mm -hmm. And it was my love of others and their love of me who held me. Mm -hmm. right in Mm -hmm. addition to psychotherapy Mm -hmm. until I was able to do it myself Mm -hmm. and actually I used to work with pregnant and parenting teenagers when I was in my 20s also and I was able to use their love for their infants and children as a a leverage point to help them to to love themselves
0: I love that yes um okay last question tough question um it's 11 o'clock at night And you have a food craving what do you reach for oh my
1: goodness (laughs) well i can't have chocolate because it'll keep me up all night so i usually go for salt actually my favorite is uh cheddar popcorn
0: cheddar popcorn nice white cheddar popcorn yeah nice um wow i hope folks that are listening to this um i mean there's just so much compassion um, in what you say and so much to be learned around ways to interact with folks in a heart-centered way. Um, thank you so much for sharing your journey. Uh, I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Amy. I had a great time. Oh, I'm so glad. And and people that are interested in your book, um, it is called Balancing Act, Writing Through a Bipolar Life. I will put that in the show notes. Um, And so that people can go and grab it. And you can also go to Kit's website, which I'll put in the show notes. Um, She does speaking engagements and mental health advocacy. And everybody should be hearing your story and listening to stories of other people with mental illness. Um, Thank you so much for the work that you're doing in this world, Kit.
1: Thank you for the work you're doing, too.
0: Thanks. Well, that's it friends. If you like what you're hearing in this space, I invite you to join us in the Provider Lounge, a learning collaborative to build resilience. It's an incredible group of physicians who meet monthly, get CME and lean into conversations about trauma, resilience and other tough topics. This is the most important medicine. Keep listening to other people's stories and let them transform you and keep sharing your own because your humanity will heal others. We'll talk soon.